Trumpet of the Swan, Chapter 4, The Signets. <clears throat> During the night, the swan thought she heard a pipping sound from the eggs, and in the hour just before dawn, she was sure she felt a slight movement under her breast, as though a tiny body were wiggling there. Perhaps the eggs at last were hatching. Eggs, of course, can't wiggle, so the swan decided she must have something under her that wasn't an egg. She sat perfectly still, listening and waiting. The cob floated nearby, keeping watch. A little swan enclosed in an egg has a hard time getting out. It never would get out if nature had not provided it with two important things, a powerful neck muscle and a small dagger tooth on the tip of its bill. This tooth is sharp, and the baby swan uses it to pick a hole in the tough shell of the egg. Once the hole is made, the rest is easy. The signet can breathe now. It just keeps wiggling until it wiggles free. The cob was expecting to become a father any minute now. The idea of fatherhood made him feel poetical and proud. He began to talk to his wife. Here I glide, swan-like, he said, while earth is bathed in wonder and beauty. Now slowly the light of day comes into our sky. A mist hangs low over the pond. The mist rises slowly, like steam from a kettle, while I glide swan-like, while eggs hatch, while young swans come into existence. I glide and glide. The light strengthens. The air becomes warmer. Gradually the mist disappears. I glide, I glide, swan-like. Birds sing their early song. Frogs that have croaked in the night stop croaking and are silent. Still I glide, ceaselessly, like a swan. Of course you glide like a swan, said his wife. How else could you glide? You couldn't glide like a moose, could you? Well, no, that is quite true. Thank you, my dear, for correcting me. The cob felt taken aback by his mate's common-sense remark. He enjoyed speaking in fancy phrases and graceful language, and he liked to think of himself as, a, as gliding swan-like. He decided he'd better do more gliding and less talking. All morning long, the swan heard the pipping of the shells, and every once in a while she felt something wiggle beneath her in the nest. It was an odd sensation. The eggs had been quiet for so many, many days, 35 days in all, and now at last they were stirring with life. She knew that the proper thing to do was to sit still. Later in the afternoon, the swan was rewarded for her patience. She gazed down, and there pushing her feathers aside came a tiny head, the first baby, the first signet. It was soft and downy. Unlike its parents, it was gray. Its feet and legs were the color of mustard. Its eyes were bright. On unsteady legs, it pushed its way up until it stood beside its mother, looking around at the world it was seeing for the first time. Its mother spoke softly to it, and it was glad to hear her voice. It was glad to breathe the air after being cooped up so long inside an egg. The cop, who had been watching intently all day, saw the little head appear. His heart leapt up with joy. A signet, he cried. A signet, at last, I am a father, with all the pleasant duties and awesome responsibilities of fatherhood. Oh, blessed little son of mine, how good it is to see your face peering through the protecting feathers of your mother's breast under these fair skies with the pond so quiet and peaceful in the long light of afternoon. What makes you think it's a son, inquired his wife, for all you know it's a daughter. Anyway, it's a signet, and it's alive and healthy. I can feel others under me, too. Perhaps we'll get a good hatch. We may even get all five. We'll know by tomorrow. I have every confidence that we will, said the cob. 
Next morning, very early, Sam Beaver crawled out of his bunk while his father was still asleep. Sam dressed and lit a fire in the stove. He fried a few strips of bacon, toasted two slices of bread, poured a glass of milk, and sat down and ate breakfast. When he was through, he found a pencil and paper and wrote a note. I have gone for a walk. We'll be back for lunch. Sam left the note where his father would find it. Then he took his field glasses and his compass, fastened his hunting knife to his belt, and set out through the woods and over the swamp to the pond where the swans lived. He approached this pond cautiously, his field glasses slung over his shoulder. It was still only a little after seven o'clock. The sun was pale, the air was chill. The morning smelled delicious. When he reached his log, Sam sat down and adjusted his glasses. Seen through the glasses, the nesting swan appeared to be only a few feet away. She was sitting very close, not moving. The cob was nearby. Both birds were listening and waiting. Both birds saw Sam, but they didn't mind his being there. In fact, they rather liked it. They were surprised at the field glasses, though. The boy seems to have very big eyes today, whispered the cob. His eyes are enormous. I think those big eyes are actually a pair of field glasses, replied the swan. I'm not sure, but I think that when a person looks through field glasses, everything appears closer and bigger. Will the boy's glasses make me appear even larger than I am, asked the cob, hopefully. I think so, said the swan. Oh, well, I like that, said the cob. I like that very much. Perhaps the boy's glasses will make me appear not only larger than I am, but even more graceful than I am. Do you think so? It's possible, said his wife, but it's not likely. You'd better not get too graceful. It might go to your head. You're quite a vain bird. All swans are vain, said the cock. It is right for swans to feel proud, graceful. That's what swans are for. Sam could not make out what the swans were saying. He merely knew they were having a conversation, and just hearing them talk stirred his blood. It satisfied him to be keeping company with these two great birds in the wilderness. He was perfectly happy. In mid-morning, when the sun had gained the sky, Sam lifted glasses again and focused them on the nest. At last, he saw what he had come to see, a tiny head thrusting through the mother's feathers, the head of a baby trumpeter. The youngster scrambled up onto the edge of the nest. Sam could see its gray head and neck, its body covered with soft down, its yellow legs and feet with their webs for swimming. Soon another signet appeared, then another. Then the first one worked his way down into his mother's feathers again for warmth. Then Winter tried to climb up his mother's back, but her feathers were slippery, and he slid off and settled himself neatly at her side. The swan just sat and sat, enjoying her babies, watching them gain the use of their legs. An hour went by. One of the cygnets, more daring than the others, left the nest and teetered around on the shore of the little island. When this happened, the mother swan stood up. She decided the time had come to lead her children into the water. Come on, she said, and stay together. Note carefully what I do. Then you do the same. Swimming is easy. One, two, three, four, five, Sam counted. One, two, three, four, five, five signets, just as sure as I'm alive. The cob, as he saw his children approach the water, felt that he should act like a father. He began by making a speech. Welcome to the pond and the swamp adjacent, he said. Welcome to the world that contains this lovely pond, this splendid marsh, unspoiled and wild. Welcome to sunlight and shadow, wind and weather. Welcome to water. The water is the swan's particular element, as you will soon discover. Swimming is no problem for a swan. Welcome to danger, which you must guard against. 
the vile fox with his stealthy tread and sharp teeth, the offensive otter who swims up under you and tries to grab you by the leg, the stinking skunk who hunts by night and blends with the shadows, the coyote who hunts and howls and is bigger than a fox. Beware of lead pellets that lie on the bottom of all ponds left there by the guns of hunters. Don't eat them, they'll poison you. Be vigilant, be strong, be brave, be graceful, and always follow me. I will go first. Then you will come along in single file, and your devoted mother will bring up the rear. Enter the water quietly and confidently. The mother swan, glad the speech was over, stepped into the water and called her little ones. The cygnets gazed for a second at the water, then tottered forward, gave a jump, and were afloat. The water felt good. Swimming was simple, no, nothing to it. The water was good to drink. Each baby dipped up a mouthful. Their happy father arched his long, graceful neck over and around them, protectively. Then he set off very slowly, with the cygnets following along in single file. Their mother brought up the rear. What a sight, San said to himself. What a terrific sight. Seven trumpeters all in a line, five of them just out of the egg. This is my lucky day. He hardly noticed how stiff he had become from sitting so long on the log. Like all fathers, the cob wanted to show off his children to someone, so he led the cygnets to where Sam was. They all stepped out of the water and stood in front of the boy, all but the mother swan. She stayed behind. Coo-hoo, said the cob. Hello, said Sam, who hadn't expected anything like this and hardly dared breathe. The first cygnet looked at Sam and said, Beep. The second cygnet looked at Sam and said, Beep. The third cygnet greeted Sam the same way, so did the fourth. The fifth cygnet was different. He opened his mouth but didn't say a thing. He made an effort to say beep, but no sound came. So instead, he stuck his little neck out, took hold of one of Sam's shoelaces, and gave it a pull. He tugged at the lace for a moment. It came untied. Then he let it go. It was like a greeting. Sam grinned. The cow cob now looked worried. He ran his long white neck between the cygnets and the boy and guided the babies back into the water to their mother. Follow me, said the cop, and he led them off full of grace and bursting with pride. When the mother thought her young ones had had enough swimming and might be chilly, she stepped out onto a sandy shore and squatted down and called them. They quickly followed her out of the pond and burrowed down under her feathers to get warm. In a moment, there wasn't a signet in sight. At noon, Sam got up and walked back to the camp, his mind full of what he had seen. Next day, he and his father heard Shorty's motor in the sky and saw the plane approaching. They grabbed their duffel bags. Goodbye, camp. See you in the fall, said Mr. Beaver, as he shut the door and gave it a pat. He and Sam climbed into the plane and were soon aloft on their way home to Montana. Mr. Beaver did not know that his son had seen a trumpeter swan bring off her young ones. Sam kept the matter to himself. If I live to be a hundred years old, thought Sam, I'll never forget what it feels like to have my shoelace pulled by a baby swan. Sam and his father were late arriving home at the ranch, but late as it was, Sam got out his diary before he turned in for the night. He wrote, There are five cygnets. They are sort of a dirty brownish-gray color, but very cute. Their legs are yellow like mustard. The old cob led them right up to me. I wasn't keep expecting this, but I kept very still. Four of the babies said, Beep! The fourth one tried to, but he couldn't. He took hold of my shoelaces, though it were a worm, and gave it a tug and untied it. I wonder what I'm going to be when I grow up. He switched off the light, pulled the sheet up over his head, and fell asleep, wondering what he was going to be when he grew up. Grew up.
Trumpet of the Swan, Chapter 5, Lewis. One evening, a few weeks later, when the cygnets were asleep, the swan said to the cob, Have you noticed anything different about one of our children, the one we call Lewis? Different, replied the cob. In what way is Lewis different from his brothers and sisters? Lewis looks all right to me. He's growing well. He swims and dives beautifully. He eats well. He will soon have his flight feathers. Oh, he looks all right, said the swan, and heaven knows he eats enough. He's healthy and bright and a great swimmer. But have you ever heard Lewis made any sound as the others do? Have you ever heard him use his voice or say anything? Have you ever heard him utter a single beep or a single burble? Come to think of it, I never have, replied the cob, who was beginning to look worried. Have you ever heard Lewis say good night to us as the others do? Have you ever heard him say good morning as the others do in their charming little way, burbling and beeping? Now that you mention it, I never have, said the cob. Goodness, what are you getting at? Do you wish me to believe that I have a son who is defective in any way? Such a revelation would distress me greatly. I want everything to go smoothly in my family life so that I can glide gracefully and serenely now in the prime of my life without being haunted by worry or disappointment. Fatherhood is quite a burden at best. I do not want the added strain of having a defective child a child that has something the matter with him. Well, said the wife, I've been watching Lewis lately. It is my opinion that the little fellow can't talk. I've never heard him make one sound. I think he came into the world lacking a voice. If he had a voice, he'd use it, same as the others do. Why, this is terrible, said the cob. <clears throat> this is distressing beyond words. This is a very serious matter. His wife looked at him in amusement. It's not too serious now, she said, but it will be serious two or three years from now when Lewis falls in love, as he will surely do. A young male swan will be greatly handicapped and find him a mate if he's able, unable to say, Coho, Coho, or if he can't utter the usual endearments to the young female of his choice. Are you sure, asked the cub? Certainly, I'm sure, she replied. I can remember perfectly well the springtime years ago when you fell in love with me and began chasing after me. What a sight you were, and what a lot of noise you made. It was in Montana, remember? Of course I remember, said the cob. Well, the thing that attracted me most to you was your voice, your wonderful voice. It was, said the cob. Yes, you had the finest, most powerful, most resonant voice of any of the young male swans in the Red Rock Lakes National Wildlife Refuge in Montana. I did, said the cop. Yes, indeed. Every time I heard you say something in that deep voice of yours, I was ready to go anywhere with you. You were, said the cop. He was obviously delighted with his wife's praise. It tickled his vanity and made him feel great. He had always fancied himself as having a fine voice, and now to hear it from his wife's own lips was a real thrill. In the pleasure of the moment, he forgot all about Lewis and thought entirely of himself. And of course, he did remember that enchanted springtime on the lake in Montana when he had fallen in love. He remembered how pretty the swan had been, how young and innocent she seemed, how attractive, how desirable. Now he realized fully that he would never have been able to woo her and win her if he had been able, unable to say anything. We'll not worry about Lewis for the time being, said the swan. He's still very young. But we must watch him next winter when we're in Montana for the season. We must stay together as a family until we see how Lewis makes out. She walked over to where her sleeping cygnets were and settled down next to them. The night was chill. Carefully, she lifted one wing and covered the cygnets with it. They stirred in their sleep and drew close to her. 
The cob stood quietly, thinking about what his wife had just told him. He was a brave, noble bird, and already he was beginning to work out a plan for his little son, Lewis. If it's really true that Lewis has no voice, said the cop to himself, then I shall provide him with a device of some sort to enable him to make a lot of noise. There must be some way out of this difficulty. After all, my son is a trumpeter swan. He should have a voice like a trumpet. But first I will test him to make certain that what his mother says is true. The cob was unable to sleep that night. He stood on one leg quietly, but sleep never came. Next morning, after everyone had enjoyed a good breakfast, he led Lewis apart from the others. Lewis, he said, I wish to speak to you alone. Let's just you and I take a swim by ourselves to the other end of the pond, where we can talk privately without being interrupted. Lewis was surprised by this, but he nodded his head and followed his father, swimming strongly in his wake. He did not understand why his father wanted to speak to him alone without his brothers and sisters. Now, said the cob when they reached the upper end of the pond, here we are, gracefully floating, supremely buoyant, at some distance from the others, in perfect surroundings. A fine morning with the pond quiet, except for the song of the blackbirds making the air sweet. I wish my father would get to the point, thought Lewis. This is an ideal place for our conference, continued the cob. There's something I feel I should discuss with you very candidly and openly, something that concerns your future. We need not range over the whole spectrum of bird life, but just confine our talk to the one essential thing that is before us on this unusual occasion. Oh, I wish my father would get to the point, thought Lewis, who by this time was getting very nervous. It has come to my attention, Lewis continued the cob, that you rarely say anything. In fact, I can't recall ever hearing you utter a sound. I've never heard you speak or say, or cry out, either in fear or in joy. This is most unusual for a young trumpeter. It is serious. Lewis, let me hear you say beep. Go ahead, say it. Say beep. Poor Lewis. While his father watched, he took a deep breath, opened his mouth, and let the air out, hoping it would say beep. But there wasn't a sound. Try again, Lewis, said his father. Perhaps you're not making enough of an effort. Lewis tried again. It was no use. No sound came from his throat. He shook his head sadly. Watch me, said the cob. He raised his neck to its full height and cried, Coo-hoo! so loud it was heard by every creature for miles around. Now let me hear you go beep, he commanded. Say beep, Lewis, loud and clear. Lewis tried. He couldn't beep. Let me hear you burble. Go ahead and burble. Like this, burble, burble, burble. Lewis tried to burble. He couldn't do it. No sound came. Well, said the cop, I guess it's no use. I guess you are dumb. When he heard the word dumb, Lewis felt like crying. The cob saw that he had hurt Lewis's feelings. You misunderstand me, my son, he said in a comforting voice. You fail to understand my use of the word dumb, which has two meanings. If I'd called you a dumb cluck or a dumb bunny, that would have meant that I had a poor opinion of your intelligence. Actually, I think you're perhaps the brightest, smartest, most intelligent of all my signets. Words sometimes have two meanings. The word dumb is such a word. A person who can't see is called blind. A person who can't hear is called deaf. A person who can't speak is called dumb. That simply means he can't say anything. Do you understand? Lewis nodded his head. He felt better, and he was grateful to his father for explaining that the word had two meanings. He still felt awfully unhappy, though. Do not let an unnatural sadness settle over you, Lewis said the cob. Swans must be cheerful, not sad. Graceful, not awkward. Brave, not cowardly. Remember that the world is full of youngsters who have some sort of handicap that they must overcome. 
You apparently have a speech defect. I'm sure you will overcome it in time. There may even be some slight advantage at your age in not be able to say anything. It compels you to be a good listener. The world is full of talkers, but it is rare to find anyone who listens. And I assure you that you can pick up more information when you are listening than when you are talking. My father does quite a lot of talking himself, thought Lewis. Some people, continued the cop, go through life chattering and making a lot of noise with their mouth. They never really listen to anything. They're too busy expressing their opinions, which are often unsound or based on bad information. Therefore, my son, be of good cheer. Enjoy life. Learn to fly. Eat well. Drink well. Use your ears. Use your eyes. And I promise that someday I will make it possible for you to use your voice. There are mechanical devices that convert air into beautiful sounds. One such device is called a trumpet. I saw a trumpet once in my travels. I think you may need a trumpet in order to live a full life. I've never known a trumpet or swan to need a trumpet, but your case is different. I intend to get you what you need. I don't know how I will manage this, but in the fullness of time, it shall be accomplished. And now that our talk has come to a close, let us return gracefully to the other end of the pond where your mother and your brothers and sisters await us. The cob turned and swam off. Lewis followed. It had been an unhappy morning for him. He felt frightened at being different from his brothers and sisters. It scared him to be different. He couldn't understand why he had come into the world without a voice. Everyone else seemed to have a voice. Why didn't he? Fate is cruel, he thought. Fate is cruel to me. Then he remembered that his father had promised to help and he felt better. Soon they joined the others and everyone started water games and Lewis joined in, dipping and splashing and diving and twisting. Lewis could splash water farther than any of the others, but he couldn't shout while he was doing it. To be able to shout while you were splashing water is half the fun. Trumpet of the Swan, Chapter 6, Off to Montana. At the end of the summer, the cob gathered his family around him and made an announcement. Children, he began, I have news for you. Summer is drawing to a close. Leaves are turning red, pink, and pale yellow. Soon the leaves will fall. The time has come for us to leave the pond. The time has come for us to go. Go, cried all the signets except Lewis. Certainly, replied their father. You children are old enough to learn the facts of life. And the principal fact of our life right now is this. We can't stay in this marvelous location much longer. Why not, cried all the signets except Lewis. Because summer is over, said the cob, and it is the way of swans to leave their nesting site at summer's end and travel south to a milder place where the food supply is good. I know that you are all fond of this pretty pond, this marvelous marsh, these reedy shores, and restful retreats. You have found life pleasant and amusing here. You have learned to dive and swim underwater. You have enjoyed our daily recreational trips when we formed in line, myself in front swimming gracefully like a locomotive, and your charming mother bringing up the rear like a caboose. Day long you have listened and learned. You have avoided the odious otter and the cruel coyote. You have listened to the little owl that says, You've heard the partridge say, quit, quit. At night, you have dropped off to sleep to the sound of frogs, the voices of the night. But these pleasures and pastimes, these adventures, these games and frolics, these beloved sights and sounds must come to an end. All things come to an end. It is time for us to go. Where will we go, cried all the signets except Lewis. Where will we go, coho, coho. Where will we go, coho, coho. We will fly south to Montana, replied the cob. 
What is Montana? asked all the cygnets except Lewis. What is Montana? Banana, banana. What is Montana? Banana, banana. Montana, said their father, is the state of the Union. And there in a lovely valley surrounded by high mountains are the Red Rock Lakes, which nature has designed especially for swans. In these lakes you will enjoy warm water arising from hidden springs. Here ice never forms, no matter how cold the nights. In the Red Rock Lakes you will find other trumpeter swans, as well as the lesser waterfowl, the geese and the ducks. There are few enemies, no gunners, plenty of muskrat houses, free grain, games every day. What more can a swan ask in the long, long cold of winter? Lewis listened to all this in amazement. He wanted to ask his father how they would learn to fly and how they would mon find Montana even after they learned to fly. He began to worry about getting lost, but he wasn't able to ask any questions. He just had to listen. One of his brothers spoke up. Father, he said, you said we would fly south. I don't know how to fly. I've never been up in the air. True, replied the cop, but flying is largely a matter of having the right attitude, plus, of course, good wing feathers. Flying consists of three parts. First, the takeoff, during which there's a lot of fuss and commotion, a lot of splashing and rapid beating of the wings. Second, the ascent, or gaining of altitude. This requires hard work and fast wing action. Third, the leveling off, the steady elevated flight, high in air, wings beating slower now, beating strongly and regularly, carrying us swiftly and surely from zone to zone as we cry, Coho, Coho, with all the earth stretched out far below. Sounds very nice, said the signet, but I'm not sure I can do it. I might get dizzy way up there if I look down. Don't look down, said his father. Look straight ahead and don't lose your nerve. Besides, swans do not get dizzy. They feel wonderful in the air. They feel exalted. What does exalted mean, asked the signet. It means you will feel strong, glad, firm, high, proud, successful, satisfied, powerful, and elevated, as though you had conquered life and had a high purpose. Lewis listened to all this with great attention. The idea of flying frightened him. I won't be able to say coho, he thought. I wonder whether a swan can fly if he has no voice and can't say coho. I think, said the cob, the best plan for me is to demonstrate flying to you. I will make a short exhibition flight while you watch. Observe everything I do. Watch me pump my neck up and down before the takeoff. Watch me test the wind by turning my head this way and that. The takeoff must be into the wind. It's much easier that way. Listen to the noise I make trumpeting. Watch how I raise my great wings. See how I beat them furiously as I rush through the water with my feet going like mad. This frenzy will last for a couple of hundred feet, at which point I will suddenly be airborne, my wings still chopping the air with terrific force, but my feet no longer touching the water. Then watch what I do. Watch how I stretch my long, white, elegant neck out ahead of me until it has reached its full length. Watch how I retract my feet and allow them to stream out behind full length until they extend beyond my tail. Hear my cries as I gain the upper air and start trumpeting. See how strong and steady my wing beat has become. Then watch me bank and turn, set my wings, and glide down. And just as I reach the pond again, watch how I shoot my feet out in front of me and use them for the splashdown as though they were a pair of water skis. Having watched all this, then you can join me and your mother too, and we will all make a practice flight together until you get the hang of it. Then tomorrow we will do it again, and instead of returning to the pond, we will head south to Montana. Are you ready for my exhibition flight? Ready, cried all the signets except Lewis. Very well, here I go, cried the cop. 
As the others watched, he swam downwind to the end of the pond, turned, tested the wind, pumped his neck up and down, trumpeted, and after a rush of 200 feet, got into the air and began gaining altitude. His long white neck stretched out ahead. His big black feet stretched out behind. His wings had great power. The beach slowed as he settled into sustained flight. All eyes watched. Lewis was more excited than he had ever been. I wonder if I can really do it, he thought. Suppose I fail. Then the others will fly away and I'll be left here all alone on this deserted pond with winter approaching, with no father, no mother, no sister, no brothers, and no food to eat when the pond freezes over. I will die of starvation. I'm scared. In a few minutes, the cop glided down out of the sky and skidded to a stop on the pond. They all cheered. Coho, coho, beep, 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 beep. All but Lewis. He had to express his approval simply by beating his wings and splashing water in his father's face. All right, said the cob, you've seen how it's done. Follow me and we'll give it a try. Extend yourself to the utmost. Do everything in the proper order. Never forget for a minute that you are swans and therefore excellent flyers, and I'm sure all will be well. They all swam downwind to the end of the pond. They pumped their necks up and down. Lewis pumped his harder than any of the others. They tested the wind by turning their heads this way and that. Suddenly, the cob signaled for the start. There was a tremendous commotion. Wings beating, feet racing, water turned to a froth. And presently, wonder of wonders, there were seven swans in the air, two pure white ones and five dirty gray ones. The takeoff was accomplished and they started gaining altitude. Lewis was the first of the young cygnets to become airborne, ahead of all of his brothers and sisters. The minute his feet lifted clear of the water, he knew he could fly. It was a tremendous relief as well as a splendid sensation. Boy, he said to himself, I never knew flying could be such fun. This is great. This is sensational. This is superb. <coughs> I feel exalted and I'm not dizzy. I'll be able to get to Montana with the rest of the family. I may de be defective, but at least I can fly. The seven great birds stayed aloft for about half an hour, then returned to the pond, the cob still in the lead. They all had a drink to celebrate the successful flight. Next day, they were up early. It was a beautiful fall morning with mist rising from the pond and the trees shining in all colors. Toward the end of the afternoon, as the sun sank low in the sky, the swans took off from the pond and began their journey to Montana. This way, cried the cob. He swung to his left and straightened out on a southerly course. The others followed, trumpeting as they went. As they passed over the camp where Sam Beaver was, Sam heard them and ran out. He stood watching as they grew smaller and smaller in the distance and finally disappeared. What was it, asked his father when Sam returned indoors. Swans, replied Sam, they're headed south. We'd better do the same, said Mr. Beaver. I think Shorty will be here tomorrow to take us out. Mr. Beaver lay down on his bunk. What kind of swans were they, he asked. Trumpeters, said Sam. That's funny, said Mr. Beaver. I thought trumpeter swans had quit migrating. I thought they spent the whole year on Red Rock Lakes where they're protected. Most of them do, replied Sam, but not all of them. It was bedtime. Sam got out his diary. This is what he wrote. I heard the swans tonight. They are headed south. It must be wonderful to fly at night. I wonder if I'll ever be able to see one of them again. How does a bird know how to get from where he is to where he wants to be?